So here we are in about, not about, exactly, the eighth day of the retreat. Um, and you've been meditating for eight days. We've given you all these instructions on the breath, on working with the body, the mind, mind states, moods, emotions, standing meditation, walking meditation, metta meditation, forgiveness meditation. But let's be honest. What's actually happening a lot of the time in your meditation? How many of you are thinking a lot of the time? Yeah, I mean, certainly here in the hall in the formal practice, but particularly as we get outside or we're in our room or going to and fro, the mind just gets consumed with thinking. It's what's happening a lot of the time goes to the past, it goes to the future, it, it, it worries. It's actually a step ahead when you're thinking about the present. For a meditator, that's actually forward movement to be thinking about the present. But it's still thinking, isn't it? And we get to see this as meditators. We get to see what our mind does. You know, and it's not just on retreat, of course. This is the nature of the mind. And it's quite, quite humbling to see this obsessive thinking. And of course, what are we thinking about? It's like big red arrows or neon lights, you know. Me, me, you know, what about me? How is this for me? And I wanted to talk about this tonight because just to get it out in the open so we kind of <laughs> recognize and that this is, acknowledge that this is what's happening and so we don't feel alone, you know, or that, you know, we're the only one this is happening to. I mean, I, you know, I can't guarantee that it's happening to me, but I have the suspicion that it is, and I know my own mind in this. So this is a big part of our practice, is looking and seeing what the mind is actually doing, all, all of these moments that we're paying attention. One of my favorite cartoons is uh, from Hilary Price, that little strip called uh, Rhymes with Orange, and she sets up the scene, there's a, a patient in a doctor's examining room and they're wearing the little paper gown that lets you know who's in charge. You know, you, you're, you're the one that's uh, definitely uh, humbled in that position. And the doctor's there with a, a clipboard and they're obviously reading the results of a test that's been done. And the caption goes, this MRI confirms it. Your mind is full of dumb and repetitive thoughts. <laughs> I don't know if they have an MRI actually to test that, but it's getting close. It's getting close. Now, in saying all this, I don't want to posit that thoughts are the enemy. It's certainly not the case. You know, this is what the mind does. It's, it's the, as the sixth sense door, you know, its, its function is to think and to have these uh, mental concepts. But we need to find a wiser relationship to our thoughts. This is what's central. Because through our thoughts... We create our world. We create our experience. The great, the opening lines of the Dhammapada. Uh, mind is the forerunner of all things. Think or act with an impure mind, and suffering will follow you as the cart follows the hoof of the ox that draws it. Think or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. I think this is really the way things are. But this world we create is often very chaotic. We play in the field of the kalesas, of greed, aversion, and delusion, and we're just dancing around in there most of the time. 
And this is, can seem like this relentless alternation of greed and aversion, often for the same thing, with a good dose of delusion, you know, thrown in for good measure. And that's, that's the contents of our mind a lot of the time. And we've had years of conditioning to function in this way. You know, we didn't get trained to, to relate to our minds, to our thoughts in any other way. Uh, one teacher who said to me, is so wise, distraction is the habit of the mind. We're very distracted, distractible a lot of the time. I just taught at uh, the long retreat at IMS, and, you know, very much like this, except a little longer. We, t- we teach a six-week session, and it's a three-month retreat. Guy was there, and Carol, and Joseph, a few other teachers. And we just were talking in the teacher room about how difficult retreats are, you know, how crazy our minds are, how restless, how agitated. Um, And especially at the beginning of our practice or the beginning of a retreat, it's really quite daunting to think of what we do have to do in practice and just saying how amazing it is that we persevere, you know, that we keep it up through all of this kind of craziness. And Joseph just said, you know, and he's been practicing for, what, 30, 40 years or something, he can still remember the first time his mind calmed down. And he said it was like, ah, oh, this big sigh of relief to, ha- to, to have a, just a temporary end to that relentless barrage of thoughts of greed, aversion, and delusion. And I'm sure you've all also had that experience of what it's like when there's just a little break in that relentless stream. Oh, you know, it's like when the refrigerator, I often liken it, when the refrigerator turns off, you hadn't even noticed it was on, but when it turns off, it's like, oh, it's so much more peaceful now. So again, though, not to make an enemy of thoughts, but really to create a different relationship to them. We begin to get curious about what's going on. What is the nature of this mind? What is the nature of our thoughts? What is it that we're thinking about all the time? Because especially here on retreat, I mean, again, let's be realistic. How much brain power do you actually need to get through a day here? How much real, you know, thought process needs... I mean, I know laundry day is a little complicated. (laughs) There's a lot of maneuvering around that. But the basic, you know, strategy of a day, sit, walk, dining hall, eat, wash a dish or two, you know, whatever your yoga... It's pretty simple, right? And yet, what are we doing with that all the time? We're just lost in this this, uh, stream of thinking. Really, you know, and it's such a radical shift when we start to relate to our thoughts in a different way, to actually turn the attention to their very nature instead of being lost in them, identified with them, totally caught in believing them. Huge difference. I can remember when, you know, I first saw that as a possibility. Thoughts are actually just a blip of energy in the mind. Some words are sometimes not even hardly rising to the level of words, jumble of words or an image or something. But really pay attention. What actually is a thought? And then we start to see this amazing insight that thoughts only have the power that we choose to give them. When we're lost, when we're identified, when we're believing them, There we go. As the Dhammapada said, we create the world. 
you turn towards a thought. And again, I'm sure you've all had this experience in your meditation. And something that was so gripping, you just look at it and it's like fog evaporating or a bubble bursting. It's like, what was, what was that all about? Where has it gone? So we see this potential for creating a different relationship to our thoughts. As we pay more attention, we see you know, that thoughts just seem, as I said, totally chaotic, random. And we certainly can't control the thoughts we have, but I actually don't believe they're random. I know, I'm sure you've also had this insight that there is a causal or a conditioned nature to them. It's just most of the time it's happening so fast or it's, it's, it's so complex that we can't see, you know, why am I thinking of this? But every now and then you think, you wake up, you think, what on earth am I thinking about, you know, my fifth grade teacher or, you know, an outfit that I wore two years ago or whatever it is. And you, you, you know, you do this little jumping where you track back, oh, I thought of that and that reminded me of that. And so it can be interesting sometimes to see this, but really not necessary or even recommended for your meditation practice. But we just get to see, you know, what the mind does. I often say the mind has no shame. You know, it will do anything to get your attention. And if it doesn't, you know, if one thing doesn't work, it'll try the next until something finally, you know, the hook is there and we we bite into it. What is important to recognize about the kinds of thoughts, especially the ones that tend to come up and, and, and really uh, grip us in some way, whatever is unresolved in our life, wherever there's stickiness, wherever there's tension or anxiety, thoughts about that are going to come up. It's just inevitable that this is going to be a big part of our practice. And our willingness, again, to include that in our practice, to be with that, whatever it is, at whatever level, um, it's happening, is a huge part of deepening in this practice. Pema Chodron says about pa- practice that a huge part of it is learning to stay, learning to stay, basically learning to be with what's happening, whatever it is, however um, challenging it might be. Unwillingness to do that leads to restlessness. And I actually think that restlessness is the core hindrance for us, particularly as Westerners, for most meditators, but particularly in the cultures that we've been brought up in with their um, excess of stimulation, the, the, the way we've been taught to think about things, that restlessness is really um, one of the challenges in our meditation. And I really want to point to this tonight. You know, we often give a a talk of the hin- around the hindrances, and it's just one that goes by in a few minutes. But as I've reflected on it more and more, and I see it in my own practice, I see how key it is to actually preventing deepening in the practice. And again, reflecting that the core of this movement of restlessness, this hindrance of restlessness, is some form or other of answering the question, am I okay? Am I okay? Was I okay? Will I be okay? And you know, for me, it's helpful to kind of get underneath. Restlessness is just a symptom to really start to look at what's going on. What's the source of all of this agitation and movement and, and inability to stay? So just perhaps think about how much time you've spent pondering that question and its variations. Am I okay? 
It's huge. The mind goes into regret about the past, anxiety about the future, and all of these different permutations of am I okay? It's huge. Now, it's very natural that the mind does this. Again, it's not a mistake. You know, in, in learning to be in the world and take care of ourselves, we have to know, you know, how, how, how to um, find a, a way of being that, that answers that a little bit, find some degree of uh, settledness around that question. So it's a, it's a very human condition to be dwelling on this question, am I okay? And the Buddha even talked about this kind of... Uh, agitated mind state of thinking about this. There's this great sutta in the Majjhima, it's the second one, so it's quite a predominant, uh, you know, pr- prominent sutta, the Sabasawa Sutta, where this paragraph is, is quite famous it's from the Buddha. This is how she attends unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Or else she is inwardly perplexed about the present. Thus, am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? Had any of those thoughts the last few days? You know, what is this? Who am I? What am I, you know, the, often comes in, what am I doing here? You know, haven't, why, don't some, why doesn't someone tell me what I should be doing here? Thinking in this way, the Buddha called unwise attention. Guy spoke last night about wise attention, yonisso manisikara, this womb-like attention. This is ayonisso manisikara. And the Buddha said, if we pay attention in this way, if we, if we give energy to these kind of thoughts, it leads to all kinds of um, proliferation and increase in the kalesas, in desire, in wanting, in a solidifying the sense of self, and deepening our delusion about the way things are. All kinds of suffering arise when we think in this way. So that's from 2,500 years ago. As I said, I'm sure you recognize this tendency in yourself. We do this. We com- complicate things with all of this, you know, toing and throwing and pushing and pulling. And what about this? And what about that? And how do I figure this out? And how do I find happiness? And what's this? What's so as I was trying to think who exemplifies that kind of mind state, the first person that I thought of was Woody Allen. So I kind of looked at, you know, what's a good, how, what would he say about this? So this is Woody Allen. To love is to suffer. To avoid suffering, one must not love. But then one suffers from not loving. Therefore, to love is to suffer, not to love is to suffer. To suffer is to suffer. (laughs) To be happy is to love. To be happy, then, is to suffer. But suffering makes one unhappy. Therefore, to be unhappy, one must love, or love to suffer, or suffer from too much happiness. I hope you're getting this down. We make it so complicated, don't we? This is, you know, all of this agitation, trying to figure things out. How do we do this? How do we live a life? How do we find love? How do we avoid suffering? How do we get the pleasant, push away the pain? Dwelling on the past and the future, trying to understand how things are. 
And this is the field of our mind, and we bring that mind to our meditation. This is what we're doing a lot. And this, uh, especially this alteration of dwelling on the past and worrying about the future, is a big cause of the restlessness that I'm speaking about. As I said, a major hindrance for Westerners. When I go to practice with Asian teachers or practice in Asia, I don't get that sense they have the same trouble. I just, uh, in my pilgrimage, I led a day long for convert Buddhists. In, so it's new Buddhists, Indian Buddhists in Bodh Gaya. And I did interviews and these women came up and I'd say, well, what's the problem in your, you know, any difficulties in your meditation? Said, no, I just sit down and I'm happy. Said, okay. Um, well, no. So peaceful. I didn't, they didn't have anything to talk about. Their minds were just, it was so interesting. But what I really, as I was reflecting on this, I see how restlessness really, in one way you look at it, is the cause of all the other hindrances. Because as we're in this field of agitation, we're always looking for release by getting something to soothe us or pushing away what we think is difficult. Even sleepiness can come out of restlessness because we just get worn out and we give up and we just turn off. When I got back from my pilgrimage, um, a few people on the pilgrimage were reading this, this book by Ajahn Sutito, who's the abbot of Chittas Monastery in England, very wise and funny man. And he had written a book about his pilgrimage experience called Rude Awakenings. And uh, his pilgrimage put my pilgrimage to shame. I mean, I thought we had some tough conditions. He went as a monastic and vowed to keep his uh, monastic regimen while he was on pilgrimage. So he lived on dana, just getting uh, alms food, and he walked everywhere in India for six months with one companion, just having a robe and a bowl and a few possessions. Really amazing. But he, in the book, he had a lot of reflections about his um, time as a monk. It wasn't just about the pilgrimage. And there was a great piece when he talked about when he first became a monk. He ordained in Thailand. And those first Westerners who ordained, I mean, it's still difficult um, to be a monk, but it was really challenging. You know, they were really breaking new ground. It was a new country. They were ordaining in Thailand, new language, new food really challenging. But he said he stayed a Buddhist monk because to leave would have required the conviction that things would be better somewhere else. I really like that. To leave would have required the conviction that things would be better somewhere else. We sometimes, often, you know, it's the grass is greener. We think things are better, but he really saw that perhaps wasn't the case. At that time in my life, Conviction narrowed to one insight. Any suffering is mind wrought, mind created, and the way to the end of it has to come through getting to its root. Instead of figuring out different places to go, I realized that I had to come to terms with restlessness. Instead of muttering about the lack of interesting things to do and the stifling heat and the poor food and hideous mind states, I realized that the crux of the matter, although hard to come to terms with, was my own aversion. Sometimes I would recognize that I was holding out against things, and then I would relax, let go. That left the way it is, the pilgrim's way. 
most of the time we're blaming circumstances, blaming a situation. And Ajahn Sichita said, it's not that. It's really how we're relating to it. And unless we see that, we're going to be always in this thrall of, there's something better out there. Something, I can fix this in some way. And how often have you noticed this mind state? Waiting for the next thing to happen. You're sitting and you can't wait for the bell to ring so you can go and walk. You're walking, only 10 minutes. I'd much rather be sitting, it's so peaceful. When, when, you know, waiting for lunch. You get, you finally, it's 12 o'clock, you go down, and then you're not there. You're not present for the food because you're, you know, re- worried or agitated by something in the dining room or wanting to get out of there and go take a nap or go take a walk. We're so often not present because we're waiting for the next thing to happen. And this tendency to not be satisfied where we are is a huge part of this mind state of restlessness, this searching to fix the situation by changing it, by changing the scenery. Sometimes we're not even aware that we're doing it. There's just this subtle or not so subtle sense of dissatisfaction, of dis-ease, of not being okay here and now with what's actually happening. Really important to begin to recognize this. Again, it's such a hindrance, this unwillingness to fully land where we are. And, you know, sometimes it's 50-50. It's kind of like we're kind of here, but these little thoughts will flicker through or there's, you know, you feel it energetically. It's like, oh, you know, something else better. Really pay attention to that. What, what's going on in the mind, in the body at that time? What is it like? We can know this. And to see that this restlessness, this dissatisfaction is not saying anything true about the present moment. It's just a concept. It's just a mind state. And again, if we turn to it, can have a very different understanding or relationship to it. But as we begin to pay attention in these more subtle ways, you know, we're kind of with the breath, but there's just this hovering in and out and thought, you know, thoughts flickering through. And sometimes we, we deliberately choose to follow a train of thought, much more interesting than the breath. It seems like practice can actually increase restlessness. Doesn't it seem like that? You know, we, usually we can go through our day and not even have this sense of restlessness. But when we take away the distractions and the usual busyness, like see how predominant that, that mind state is or that experience. But I think what's actually happening is we're seeing what's there a lot of the time, but usually we are able to act on it. We're usually able to distract ourselves, to go do something else. And here, options pretty limited, let's face it. You know, sit, walk, wander about a bit, do your laundry, you know, get a meal or a cup of tea, not so much to do. Really helpful to get interested in this state if you experience it. Again, what is it like? And for me, it's really helpful to feel the suffering in it. Because, again, we can believe it and buy into it and start moving, you know, in response to it, trying to fix things, do something different, instead of turning right towards it and seeing what it's like. 
And this tendency of mind really has the power to keep us superficial in our practice because we're always trying to manipulate circumstances to deal with this restlessness, this sense of dissatisfaction, without actually turning to the source itself. If we do, what we often come up with is just aversion. I don't like this. I don't like this restless. It shouldn't be here. It's the eighth day of the retreat. I should be calm by now. Why am I still having this sense of agitation or you know, inability to sit still longer than 30 minutes or however it's manifesting? like for you. So again, turn to that, turn to know the aversion, turn to know the energy of restlessness itself. We can often, um, lay, we often do label it as unpleasant and it can be, but again, it also can be something we can get interested in. If we get interested in it, possibility of really changing that relationship, it can then actually become energy that we can use for practice can actually enliven our practice. As I said the other night in the late night sit, if we get interested in what's happening, it's all workable. It's all field for our practice. So instead of, you know, just labeling it un- unpleasant, slapping this big unpleasant label on it, get curious. It's just energy. Is there any pleasantness in it? Or is it neutral? What's actually happening there. It's the mind making a problem out of it that we're actually aversive to. Actual physical sensations are just what they are. So we work with the energy, the physical manifestation, but as I said earlier, really important to, as we sit with it, see this underlying um, issue, core issue of the am I okay uh, question. I really see this as like the piece of grit in the oyster. You know, I'm sure for the oyster, very unpleasant. They're like, oh, I've got to deal with this. What is this in my little world? Um, and that's what it's like for us. If we work with it skillfully, it can actually become a pearl of awakening because to get to the source of this am I okay is to be able to actually do this mudra of the Buddha and say, yes, I am okay. I can awaken, I can do this. But we have to go to that place and, and hear that little voice that's going, no, no, what about this, what about that, I don't know, what about me, what about me? Just to be there and, and pay attention. So when you look at this um, attitude of restlessness, or this experience of restlessness, really see that the mind moves in three main ways. It goes to the past, goes to the future, and a little bit on the present past. Again, how much time do we spend wandering in the fields of the past? Pleasant, unpleasant memories, all of this stuff. What, as I said, whatever that's, un, you know, it's, it's stuff long gone, but whatever is unresolved will come up at some point, in your, whether it's on this retreat or another retreat. The longer the retreat, the more likely that it will come up. From the long-distant past, from just recently, all of our hurts and our wounds and our sorrows and our regrets and our guilt and our remorse and our shame and our dread. This is a big part of our practice is actually working skillfully with this. Most of us at some point or another, um, and you know, it can happen over and over again, go, go through some form of life review where just, you know, you're sitting there, you know, 
2011, and all of the things, one by one, it's like this parade of all of the unskillful actions you did, or the, the things, the hurtful things that were done to you, the different, as I said, wounds and, and uh, challenges of a life. They will come up for us. You know, the unkind thing you send to, said to your sister or the phone call you didn't make to a friend who you knew really wanted to hear from you or, you know, um, whatever it is, much deeper wounds that we, we have in a life. Learning to work skillfully with that is really a big part of our practice. Again, this is part of the agitation, the restlessness, and turning a light, shining a light on these places that, whether they're recent or long hidden, a big part of beginning the healing process. And I really see that um, there's a whole uh, process that we can, that I feel we need to go through. Of course, it's not linear, but some variation of this in working with these memories as they come up for us. And it's a four-step process. We need to acknowledge what happened, accept what happened, forgive what happened, and develop compassion for ourselves and for others. Really important to, to go through all of, you know, some variation of these kinds of steps. In acknowledging what's happened, it's just really the willingness to say, yes, there were these harmful actions, unskillful actions that I did or that were done to me. Very simple naming and recognizing. Sometimes we can have a tendency to deny the hurt or to try to minimize it, you know, to say things like, I should have got over that by now. You know, why is this? Push that away. I don't want to deal with it. Our process or the most helpful process is just to recognize if it's up, it's up. There's something that's not resolved about this, something that needs some attention, needs some sitting with. So we really just need to acknowledge that and let that in, let that resonate. And then, of course, key is accepting. Whatever it was, it happened. Your action, someone else's action, this actually happened. We'll, and so we have to be willing to say, yes, I did that, or yes, that happened to me. As we work in this field, again, need a lot of skill, kindness and gentleness, and it's not something we push or force through. Really need to understand the difference between guilt and remorse key in this area. Guilt is when we identify with the action and say, you know, I did this and that means I'm bad or I was wrong. And out of that, there can be a lot of shame. We want to hide. We don't feel we're worthy. Um, There's a really a collapsing around the event. This is not a helpful way to relate to difficult experiences in the past. Remorse acknowledges that there was unskillful actions, but sees 
the actions is unskillful, not the person or not myself, and is willing to learn from those actions, really feels the impact of them, feels the suffering around them, and has that confidence or faith or trust that we can change or grow, that, you know, whatever action occurred was out of our confusion, out of our fear, out of the circumstances we were in. And there's a real willingness to to see that, to acknowledge that. So really important to have remorse as a skillful way of relating to these kinds of experiences and not talking about feeling guilty or, or ashamed of what happened. You know, we do the best we can in these difficult situations. And you know, our willingness to open to it in the moment, in the present moment, really is the beginning of a big healing of that. And then thirdly, forgiveness. This is a big issue. Susie did a beautiful meditation on it uh, the other day. I'm sure you, you felt the impact of that if this issue is up for you. Really, uh, one of the things I've... It's a, it's a great line about forgiveness. Forgiveness means letting, giving up all hope for a better past. How much time have you spent trying to rearrange your past? You know, the woulda, coulda, shoulda. If only I had said or not said or done or not done. You know, all that. And it's it's just, there is nothing more impossible or frustrating than trying to do that. Yet we can spend hours and go back to it and, and chew on it like a dog on an old bone. You know, if only I should have, I could have, wouldn't it have been different? What would it be like? It's gone. It's done coming into alignment with this truth, with the equanimity, it happened. And from that place, really accepting. You know, as I said, that whatever actions were done were done, you know, whatever reason, fear, confusion, anger, shame, um, not knowing, you know, out of delusion a lot of time. So it's a beginning of letting go of resentment or blame or being a victim. But we can't force forgiveness. This is not something we can have an agenda about that we need to do on any kind of timetable. I actually think if we can just hold the possibility of at some future point forgiving, that's the biggest step we need to take in this path to healing. So really, again, being very gentle in this. So there is a formal practice, as Susie taught the other day. Sometimes it's just being willing to sit with what is and feel that kind of tenderness that can come as we open to it. Because what can happen next as we go through this cycle, and we'll go through it again and again to deeper and deeper levels, is the opening to compassion. It really feels the suffering, acknowledges it, but sees it as not wrong or a mistake, but the human condition. Um, And so we start to open to our experience, our memories, our past, with a sense of love and kindness and acceptance. And it's such a um, gift when we can make that transition. You know, in my own experience, when these memories would come up, 
the first response would just be the sharp contraction, this no, you know, I don't want it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want it to be true. And I just saw how sitting over time, over time, now there's just this real tenderness as I look back at, you know, myself at 15 or 18 or 25 or whatever it was, and just a sense of compassion for how lost and confused I was and how most of the harm that I did was to myself, you know, and not not really taking care of myself. It's been a, a great shift. And then, of course, we go to the future. How much planning, mind, have you had here? And again, you know, how much do you need to plan to do sitting and walking? Pretty minimal. Bell rings, you change posture. It's all pretty taken care of. But it can be the source of so much energy, so much anxiety, so much excitement, planning the next hour, planning the next day, planning, you know, we're here on retreat and we're planning our next retreat. Have you had that thought? You know, next retreat, that's the practice I'm going to do. And, uh, you know, whatever mess I'm in now, it's going to be different at my next retreat. You know, should I do this practice or that practice? Should I go here? Should I go there? Should I walk like this or like that? What are they doing? Should I do it like that? You know, what, what, what are the teachers saying? What did they say yesterday? What are they saying today? Is it the same? It's endless. It's endless. And we can approach this planning kind of mind with two main, main um, strategies. One is the anxiety that worries about it, and the other is a kind of excited you know, exuberance that's, that's also a hindrance and has a more grasping uh, um, tendency to it. And in that case, it's a pleasantness that keeps us obsessed with it. And in the anxiety one, it's, you know, it's really we have the belief if we worry about something hard enough, we can control the outcome. I mean, we don't want to admit it, but that's basically what we're thinking, isn't it? That, you know, if we, if we think about it enough, we'll be able to manipulate experience, manipulate reality so that we'll get our preferred outcome. How's that working out for you? <laughs> it's not, not, doesn't, you know, doesn't happen in that way. Guy led the meditation this morning on, on Vedana, and so I was practicing with that. And I noticed what, what was coming up in my mind, you know, future planning. I'm, uh, in next month, I'm making my annual trip back to Australia to visit my family. And, you know, I noticed that the, as a, the trip gets closer, you know, my thoughts of going there and seeing my family and friends start to come up with more regularity. I'm, I'm really used to this. I've haven't lived there for 20, I, I lose track, long time, 30 years or something. Um, so I've been through this cycle a lot. <clears throat> but I noticed what was happening this time is, you know, I, I, I always fly coach, but I always have the hope that they'll upgrade me. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's based on no uh, actuality at all, but... I actually am a, what, you know, a, a premier member, you know, frequent flyer at the moment. So now I have more, you know, a little basis for this hope. So I just saw this morning, I was thinking, oh, business class. You know? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice to lie down flat on that way to Australia? And it, it was so pleasant to think of business class. So that's, you know, what got the mind going. But then immediately followed on from that was, I bet it won't happen. But what if it happens? How do I get it to happen? You know, what do I have to do? What do I have to... And I just saw the whole agitation. You know, there's this little blip of pleasantness with the idea of business class that has no basis in reality. 
I mean, I haven't been upgraded, however many... Once it happened because there was a broken seat in business class or something, and they stuck me there. Um, <clears throat> all the other times, it's never happened. And I just see, you know, if I can dwell, try to dwell on the pleasantness, because that's what we do, oh, business class. But the actual experience really is suffering. It's suffering as the mind goes into that future planning and trying to control the outcome. So, you know, we, we just need to pay attention to this mind that's always reaching, always going, whether it's reaching with aversion and worry or um, grasping and desire. Look and see. The actual impact on us is still a variation of some form of suffering, some form of suffering. So really helpful to use this practice of not now. Again, I've been on a lot of retreats. I've seen this tendency of mind can spin out for, I could say, minutes, but reality is probably more like hours, especially planning what I'm going to do when I get off retreat. Any mind moments turn to that yet? You know, it's three weeks or eight weeks away or whatever it is, and here we are planning meals, walks, meeting with friends, conversations. You know, I've talked about this before because I used to, you know, especially closer to the time, but, you know, it can happen any time. And so I started to keep track of these fantasies, especially the ones that I would go back to and chew on and embellish a little, you know, you know those ones, and to see how many of them actually came true in the way I imagined them, fantasized. Guess what my hit rate was for that? Anyone? Zero. Zero. I mean, literally, I started to realize that if I thought about something, it was actually like a curse and there was no way it would come through that way. So that's a, you know, that was actually a real support to, you know, if you want that to happen, don't think about it because you think about it, it's never going to happen, never going to happen the way you imagine. So really just to, you know, bring this reality into this tendency of mind to just spin out these fantasy scenarios that aren't actually going to happen and to feel the impact that it has on your experience right now. You know, as we're drifting away in business class, what's actually happening right now? We're not present. Here isn't good enough. My experience now isn't okay. And there we go in the restlessness again. Not okay. Feel the impact of these fantasies, this future planning on your actual experience. And then there's the third, the present you know, as I said, it, it's a little bit of a step forward, but um, it's still a lot of thinking. Am I okay? Am I doing it right? Compared to yesterday, compared to tomorrow, compared to other people. What will I say to the teachers? What do the teachers think of me? You know, what do all the other yogis think of me? We can again be obsessed that everything is about me and, you know, people are looking at me or watching how I'm walking or how long I'm sitting or, you know, that I'm going so slowly or they saw that I was spaced out. Really, I mean, please, it's a little humbling, but people aren't paying that much attention to you. (laughs) Yvonne Rand, she's this great Zen teacher and she's, she's, she really tells it like this. She has this very earthy phrase, so excuse, it's her language. But she says, most of our obsession is thinking, I'm the piece of shit the world revolves around. <laughs> so we have this, you know, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, but everyone's looking at me, everyone's paying attention to me. You know, we, it's, neither of them are true. 
But we can get obsessed in this, that people are, you know, worrying, you know, looking at me and judging me, mainly because we're spending a lot of time doing that to them, possibly. But most people are more concerned with themselves than they are with you. So just to actually be in your experience without this sense of always uh, triangulating and worrying about it. Because our practice really is to come into accord with the way things are, to get below and through these layers of projection and perceptions, you know, that I spoke about the other night, these, to bring into consciousness these choices that we're making all the time about what to pay attention to and what is, uh, what's influencing our experience and our uh, decisions and our actions. So we need to be willing always just to be with what is and keep turning the attention back. What's happening here and now? What can I know for sure or for true? And even that, you know, we don't want to there's always layers to that. We're, we're, we're living in a conditioned realm, so there are all these influences. But the more we can stay with our experience, not wander off to the past, not wander off to the future, and when we're here in the present, not be doing this constant movement of agitation, of comparing and judging and evaluating, but really knowing what is this experience like of mind and body, and beginning to develop this connection to ourselves and our experience that we can start to trust that actually settles a little. And I'm really liking this word settling uh, in uh, the concept of our meditation, to settle, to let things settle. It's the opposite of restlessness. It has the implication of letting things be as they are so we're not so pushed and pulled by this tug of war of the hindrances and the calaces, but we actually just land. Again, this beautiful gesture, this touching the earth kind of gesture. And so we can start to trust ourselves. When we're in that agitated state of am I okay, am I not okay, there's not truth we're usually not finding the truth in answering that question out of restlessness, out of agitation. The answer to that question comes when we settle and we know this experience as it is. There's everything here we need to awaken. We don't need to go anywhere else. We don't need anything else. We don't need a different body. We don't even need a different mind. Might be, you know, seem a little shocking. But as the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body is everything we need to awaken. We just need to pay attention to get closer and closer to this experience, whatever it is. We start at whatever level it's presenting itself. And it can seem overwhelming, you know, as we add all these instructions, Vedna, we'll talk about intention, mind, body, you know, it can seem overwhelming. Most important thing in Pema Children, start where you are. Start with what you notice here and now. 
if we kind of try to take it all in and do all the practices all at once, of course we'll have this feeling of overwhelm. Of course we'll get lost and confused. But if we start with what's right in front of us, with this sense of honesty and authenticity, so if there's restlessness, what's that like? Sleepiness or dullness, what's that like? If we can get interested, the whole practice can unfold. If there's contraction, if there's aversion or grasping, what's that like? Oh, it's like this. As we come closer and closer into contact with direct experience, this trust in our capacity to know and to awaken just grows and deepens. I mean, it's as simple and as difficult as that. Just paying attention. And important, as I said, to do this without a sense of pushing or agenda. You know, when, when we're working in the field of memories coming up, of difficult experiences, it's not, we're not here to fix that. We're here to understand it, to accept it, and to know it as it is. So it's really important, again, to be where you are with this, right where you are, and trust mindfulness. Stick Nhat Hanh calls it the miracle of mindfulness. It's such a simple practice, but in it is the possibility of revealing everything, everything, literally everything, uh, all the way to revealing the unconditioned, the highest happiness, or nibbana, just from this willingness to be here right where we are. There's this <clears throat> beautiful poem by Hafez, the Persian poet, teacher of Rumi, called It Felt Love. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. And why... I think this is relevant for us in our practice is this line, the encouragement of light against its being. Mindfulness is this light against our being, against our very being, revealing all of these layers of our experience, the ones we've hidden deliberately or you know, unconsciously, the regrets, the fears, the anxieties, Mindfulness can reveal all of that to us. And as we open to that with a sense of kindness and acceptance, a radical shift begins to happen. And we no longer need to ask that question, am I okay? This trust and confidence grows that we are okay and that there is a real possibility of true and deep freedom, contentment and happiness in this very life just by being willing to pay attention in this way, by being willing to turn towards what's difficult, what's challenging, not skitter off into delusion or story or restlessness, but actually again and again coming back and being present. Pain in the mind, pain in the body, memories, thoughts, confusion. This is the field of our meditation practice 
We don't need different memories, a different mind or a different body to wake up. We just need to pay attention and allow this process that we're all here engaged in and committed to. You wouldn't be here unless you knew the value of this process in this practice. So much is just about trusting that, trusting ourselves, trusting the practice, trusting the Dhamma. If we can do that, then the whole path will unfold before us. We don't have to push. We don't have to reject. We just keep showing up. And this tendency to restlessness, this this inability to settle, just diminishes, just diminishes as we're willing to be right where we are with what is as it is. So let's just take a moment to let the words settle. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.